0: Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast, your weekly home for UK media news. Recorded today at the London Podcast Studios, I'm Matt Deegan, and on the show today it's Trump versus CNN again. Uh, what lessons did the broadcaster learn from the last election cycle? Also on the program, Sony reduces its podcast spend, and ITV revenues are down. But are they outliers in this advertising downturn? Plus, on the deep dive this week, we look at the perils of reporting on the depth trials uh, in both the UK and the US. All that plus a media quiz on the best media quotes of the week. Uh, That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, the Mirror phone hacking trial begins with allegations that Piers Morgan must have known about illegal activity at the paper. Uh, the trial continues, and we wish friend of the show Jim Watterson our best in these challenging times. Uh, ahead of Eurovision in Liverpool, BBC exec Kate Phillips has said the primary concern is of a coordinated cyber attack. Uh, the UK is hosting the ceremony on behalf of Ukraine uh, due to the ongoing war with Russia. And the US writer strike continues pace with ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live, CBS's The Late Show and NBC's Tonight, as well as Late Night, all showing repeats. Uh, Disney Plus shows including Andor have paused production, as has the Amazon hit Good Omens. But today, live from the London podcast studio, I have two media experts here with me to cover some more stories shaking up the industry. First up, it's Deadline Reporter and occasional Matt Deegan replacement, Jake Cantor. Hi, <laughs> Jake.
1: Oh, uh, apologies to the media podcast listeners, yeah. No, I'm good. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Good, thanks. Um, so, Coronation, did you uh, partake in any Coronation coverage?
1: Well, I was I was watching uh, for the whole day uh, because, yeah, we were, we were covering on Deadline. Um, and, uh, I mean, I was trying to keep an eye on as many different broadcasters as possible, which is quite difficult, but... <laughs> Uh, I am mainly stuck with the BBC. I think the big thing I took away from the BBC's coverage is um, that they totally ignored the protests. Yes. Um, to the point where it wasn't mentioned at all. And this is not just this on BBC... This is outside B- of the news, a little bit this mentioned is, in yeah, the news. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, look, don't forget that BBC News was carrying... The BBC Studios coverage. So if you were watching the BBC News channel, you were just getting what was on BBC One, which was basically no news. It was all coverage of the event itself. And I reflect on that and I, I just don't think that's um, particularly a good look for the BBC when it preaches impartiality so loudly. Uh, and that has become a really big story about the coronation and it wasn't even sniffed upon by the BBC presenters uh, while rivals like ITV mentioned it. Sky News even had an interview with a Republican representative and um, uh, uh, smaller channels like Talk TV also gave it some coverage and I just think the BBC looked a little out of step. Um, I actually asked Charlotte Moore the BBC's mm-hmm. uh, chief content officer about it today. Uh, she was speaking at a Voice of the Viewer and Listener event and her response was basically the news covered it, which is what, yeah. which is what you said. Um, but I'm not sure that's a, that's a great answer when you've got basically acres of coverage without it being mentioned.
0: Uh, and also joining me uh, from Edelman is Karen Robinson. Hello! Hello! Uh, and did you partake in the uh, coronation coverage? Did you watch something different because you import from America?
2: Yes, as an American it's always fascinating to me to watch the royal coverage. I did wind up watching it all day um, uh, and from a slight critical distance so I think <laughs> you, we had dear lovely friends who actually had travelled in from Kent to spend the day in the pouring rain standing outside in a park not seeing anything and they felt very happy about their day I sat inside in the warm sipping tea and making snarky comments about it which seemed about right to me um and were you
0: watching on the BBC or well did you flick I flick around
2: I switched back and forth between the BBC and ITV mm. I actually basically watched the, the watch the the event itself on BBC and then flicked to IP ITV which I thought had quite a good panel going um they had a, a quite a good mix but I think my p- highlight of the whole thing that summed up the entire experience for me of slight disconnection and kind of the sense that the media wasn't really reporting the truth as they knew it to be um, was the repeated times during the day when they kept telling us that it was only a light damp whilst the rain was actually coming into the it was actually hitting the the lens of the camera and there was wind blowing up and I thought you can be honest about the weather come on it's everything must
0: be positive (laughs) we're We're excited we're excited Uh, okay well we start this week with a couple of stories from across the pond Uh, first CNN's decision to do a town hall with former president Donald Trump uh, on Wednesday amid a A barrage of outrageous comments, including calling the woman who he was convicted of sexually assaulting a whack job, Uh, host Caitlin Collins uh, struggled to counter his worldview. Karen, what did you make of this?
2: Well, I I think what I make of that is buckle your seatbelts, because we are in for a lot more of that between now and the next election. Um, This was only the start. I think CNN took a lot of criticism for doing the town hall, and I can understand where that criticism is coming from. But I have some sympathy for the media, because ultimately, he is the front runner for the Republican nomination for the president. He is a former president himself. In any rational world, those two things would make him a perfectly reasonable person to give some. Airtime too, and let him uh, put forward his policies and his goals for the United States. The problem is he doesn't have policies and goals for the United <laughs> States. What he has is um, a sort of, you know, a knee-jerk narcissism and uh, and a t- desire to lash out. I mean, I think you mentioned. E. Jean Carroll. It was um, very gratifying to see that um, that she proved her case in court. She had the opportunity of doing that. Um, it was found that that Trump Trump's team put up no defense to the charges against him. Effectively, They no no one testified on his behalf. Um, she had quite a quite a few people testifying on her. So it has been proven in the court of law appropriately. And a big part of that case was defamation that he had that he had uh, defamed her by claiming that she was lying and he. He proceeded to go right back out and defame her again and will continue to do so and and if maybe a few years down the line there's another court case that uh tries him for defaming her again then we'll see to that but he just understands that he has the ability to do this and there's really not much that you can do to stop him well there's no
0: consequences to his lying yeah. and we've known this since 2016 but uh uh there's a danger that the same mistakes uh, are going to happen again for for news media being somewhat trapped. I mean, Jake, it reminded me a bit of the kind of Elon Musk BBC interview uh, from a few weeks back. I mean, is there anything newsrooms can learn to better deal with these situations? Uh, try
1: not to do interviews on the terms <laughs> of their guests. Um, I mean, that's a difficult thing to... But even
0: a one-on-one with, with Caitlin... Yeah wouldn't have been that different. It wouldn't have had the cheers in the background.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, they they clearly had a very Republican audience, didn't they? But it was for a uh, primary, so yeah, it was
0: yeah. potential primary yeah. voters.
1: So, I mean, look, my when I was thinking about this, it feels like a bit of an, uh, maybe an overcorrection from CNN. I don't know. I mean, they've taken criticism for perhaps, perhaps um, uh, censoring the views of Donald Trump, or at least not giving him the coverage that he warrants, um, and perhaps being too left-wing, um, I think it's really interesting that this came like two days after David Zaslav, uh, the chief executive of uh, Warner Bros Discovery, basically said we want CNN to be a broader church and to reflect more uh, views from all sides of the aisles. And uh, I didn't expect to see it quite so soon, <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I think, a, well, I don't know the people were surprised. I mean, it, again, it's it's this isn't going to be the last time that, that there are events like this that news media have to cover. I mean, speaking of Musk, and we've also learned this week that Tucker Carlson seems keen to waive his $20 million gardening leave to start a live show... On Twitter, Um, Karen, do you think this says anything about the new Twitter, where they're going to pivot to? Is it a pivot to video? It's a sort of old-fashioned term, but... I I don't think it
2: it says very much about Twitter. I think it potentially says a a little bit about Tucker Carlson himself, who finds himself in a difficult spot now. Um, I think it will be really interesting. I I am not particularly optimistic about his chances of succeeding with that format, um, largely because the people who were enjoying... "Quote unquote," enjoying Tucker's uh, racist ravings on Fox at the 8, the 8 p.m. slot, um, are not the Twitter demographic necessarily. We're talking about typically older viewers, um, the, the the core Fox demographic. So I don't know that they're gonna. There will be some, of course, but I don't know that they'll be flocking in high numbers. It's always worth remembering when you talk about the power of "quote unquote" a Tucker Carlson type person that it it's Fox News that has the power. It's them that put him in that slot. Um, I don't think he. I mean, he has some cult of personality in his own right, but you have to remember that before there was Tucker Carlson, there was Bill O'Reilly, who was the man who previously had the same slot, who was a huge, powerful cultural figure at that time who had the ability to kind of speak and make news and who nobody's heard from since. So will Tucker Carlson go that route or will the social media evolution give him more opportunity to keep his voice in the in the conversation? Um, probably somewhere in between, but I'm, I'm not that optimistic about Twitter being the right format for that.
0: And Jake, Twitter's advertisers uh, have had a bit of a tough time with all, all of these changes. Some have pulled off the platform or paused use it doesn't help elon's aim to to get more advertisers back on twitter does it well the perception is that those that are taking up
1: uh twitter blue are of a uh certain uh world view and uh that may be a bit more right wing alt right i don't know whatever whatever you want to use whatever term you want to use to describe it and that's potentially the audience that tucker carlson is trying to tap into I think the timing of it is really fascinating because, as you've just said, Karen, you know other Fox News presenters have left Fox and just disappeared. I mean, Bill's a great example. Another one's like Glenn Beck, I guess. Um, and the fact that he's getting out of the gates early. Um, and making sure that he he there's not a huge gap between him being on fox and then sort of reappearing somewhere else i think is probably at the forefront of his mind i think yeah you know, he's he's apparently reportedly according to Axio, uh, axios um t- uh, taking a lawsuit out against fox because of the non compete clause he's arguing that fox news actually broke the contract and therefore it's null and void um but it suggests also to me that he may have some backing um, it's not quite sure from whom. I think if he's going to take that risk that Fox but, come after him, then he must have some support well, from somewhere in order al- to but show.
0: He's also massively wealthy. Yes. Uh, so he's done very well out of Fox. But, but, he's n- but also, he's the he's a his wife is the heir to like a frozen food fortune. Uh, so actually, the money is almost irrelevant. I think he needs to get back on the telly uh, or similar digital platforms um, quick to to keep his relevance up.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Uh, Twitter has a patchy record with uh, with video, doesn't mm. it? Um, I remember a BuzzFeed show, AM to DM, mm. which, uh, you know, has died with BuzzFeed.
0: Uh, now, uh, Sony Entertainment have downsized their narrative podcast team after a big spending drive that included the acquisition of production company Something Else. According to Bloomberg this week, the team was focusing on consolidating certain seasonal shows into single feeds in an effort to find guaranteed audiences for limited series get all that out (laughs) um uh, Karen I guess this means more anthology shows uh does this strategy make sense to you? Is this just following what's happening in the podcast space, a bit of a, a pause?
2: I mean, it does seem to match what's happening in the broader podcast, podcast landscape generally. And I think what's happening is a little bit of, I mean, consolidation is the word you used. And I think that's exactly right. I think um, at Edelman, we often tell clients, fewer, bigger, better. And I think that's exactly where podcast is going. It's um, There has been a proliferation of lots of things. They've been in this realm of, let's try a lot of things on and see what fits. And now I think we've learned enough in the the podcast universe to start to understand some types of program formats that do seem to work. Um, And I think it makes there's some strategic logic in putting more effort, more energy behind the, the fewer number of programs that we have confidence in. Personally, I kind of regret that because I, I liked Podcast World when it was a little bit more open space and it was allowing a lot of creators to come to the fore who didn't otherwise have opportunities. That, for me, was one of the excitements about the podcast landscape. But I am not a media conglomerate. And if I were, I probably would see it very differently.
0: <laughs> I mean, Jake, uh, like Spotify, it sort of sounds like the big money podcast deals are all sort of being being replaced with traditional, more traditional thinking.
1: Yeah, the giant pot of gold at the po- at the end of the podcast rainbow perhaps isn't I'm still uh, looking for uh, it <laughs> isn't quite there um yeah I mean uh, sadly I mean I guess you could do a story every week on media layoffs couldn't you and, mm. um uh this follows Spotify uh, as you say pulling back on some of its original podcasts NPR I think um, yes they re- very recently said yeah. that uh, they were going to take money out of podcasting and put it back into radio. Mm. Um interestingly I've just you know as I said earlier uh, listening to Charlotte Moore she was talking about it the opposite way around so the BBC's taking money out of radio and putting it into podcasting. They've just announced this new series with Kirsty Young mm. uh today which sounds remarkably like Desert Island Discs. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, yes, maybe no great surprise. There are, yeah. there are only a few core formats everyone returns to. Yeah. Uh, well, another media company uh, in a little bit of trouble is ITV. They disclosed a drop in revenue of 10% since the start of the year. Uh, the broadcaster points to a challenging market uh, with inflation and the cost of living crisis uh, affecting their spending. Um, I mean, Jake, ITV said their performance was still better than the wider TV industry. Uh, how so?
1: Well, I think uh, ITV is very focused on ITVX at the mm. moment, and I think they're pleased with the way that that has started. They're certainly talking it up to the market, which of so course they would.
0: Double, view, double the views that maybe the old ITV player had? Yeah, I mean, look. Mm. Hard to t- know what that means.
1: This is a low bar, I think. Yes. Yeah. ITV, I mean, it <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, ITV Hub was uh, a um, not brilliant streaming service. Uh, I'm going to be diplomatic and choose my words carefully. Um, I think that what we are seeing potentially with ITB is, um, is is symptomatic of broader concerns in the advertising market. Uh, other commercial broadcasters are also experiencing a slowdown in uh, advertising revenue and sooner or later that's going to start biting on uh, content spend. And uh, you talk to senior executives at broadcasters, and they're all uh, talking about conservatism uh, with a small C, rather than spending lots of cash at the moment. And that's not just commercial broadcasters, advertising funded broadcasters, that goes right across the whole gamut.
0: Um, Karen, ITVX has launched into a pretty competitive space, uh, but with Netflix taking ads, we've talked about it on the show, you know, consumers reducing uh, the number of direct debit mandates, uh, leaving uh, their bank accounts. Um, Actually, the the appeal of a free service become quite attractive for UK consumers.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can see the logic of it. Of course, in the UK, you have the challenge that the iPlayer exists, um, which is already a free, <laughs> which is not a free service, but mm-hmm. um, you know it's paid for within the licensing. So I think you know the, the BBC is always very competitive there, but Netflix has has slowed its growth. Um, I mean, it's basically maxed out. I think in a lot of markets, it's maxed out to its potential subscriber numbers, um, and they're seeing some small amounts of attrition. So um, I think there would be certainly opportunities for that. And I think ITV has, unlike Netflix, it has legacy content. It has a lot more kind of in the can to play with potentially. So I'll be interested to see where they go. But certainly, as, as Jake says, the, the previous incarnation was, was not a very compelling user experience. So um, I think they were smart to invest in making it work.
0: Stick around. There's more from Karen and Jake uh, after this. And- Now onto the deep dive. Uh, You may remember journalist Nick Wallace from our chat last year when we discussed his decade-long investigation into the post office scandal. Well, now he's back with a new book covering the two trials of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, one from the UK in the midst of lockdown, where his coverage crowdfunded him, to the US, where he encountered a different legal system. Here's Nick.
3: It was a fascinating uh, experience in terms of just contrasting what was essentially the same case being litigated again Mm. in an entirely different judicial system. In the UK, we had a single judge um, spending three months with the transcripts in the trial bundle to come to his decision. And in the US, we had a jury who took, I think, two and a half working days to come to their decision um, with a very different set of um, information to work from. And a, a I'd say significantly different method of delivering the testimony and evidence in open court in America. Is mean, it much more of a performance by everybody? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's hard not to come to that conclusion. And I'm sure there are lawyers and the jurors themselves would say, no, we looked at the evidence. But I mean, there was one case where you had an expert witness who'd spent um, God knows how many hundreds of thousands of pounds or tens of thousands of dollars of their client's money on... Uh, providing expert testimony in a report which had taken weeks to prepare and they're not allowed to read from their reports in the witness box and they're allowed to refer to notes but but you're not allowed to read from your own evidence so essentially they were being required to remember mm. their, and then the jury was being required to remember what they remember of mm. the expert witness's memory when it comes to discussing it in the jury room now one of the things i researched for my book is the really ridiculous amount of weight which is placed on our memories as useful tools for remembering factual events i i interviewed a memory expert who's unfortunately didn't make it into the final cut but it was very useful <laughs> contextually i interviewed a, a a professor of memory in the united states for the book and uh, he his theory and 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 it's sort of borne out by the evidence is that your memory is not Uh, a camera it does not even even vivid events are not captured in a way that you capture them on on film um the very process of recalling a memory actually changes it and it gets stored back in your brain uh differently by the process of recalling it any other uh Thing that is related to that event that happened that you come across or discuss at a later time will also change that memory mm. of it. And there's this fascinating experiment about uh, the 9-11 attacks where uh, some fast-thinking person did a study of uh, people a week after the event, a year after the event, and five years after after the event and of course this is this is what what they call a flashbulb memory something that would obviously stick in the mind you all know where you were when if you were alive when 911 happened and uh, the studies showed that 43% of the people they asked despite all of them being absolutely vehement about where they were and what they were doing <laughs> their stories had changed yeah. over the three times that they went back and asked them and memory is actually a way of providing our brains and our bodies with a survival guide for moving forwards through life it's not a way of recording yeah. information yet the the US, well, just US justice system appears to be much more focused on memory, the reliability of memory, what the jurors remember of what they saw in court. And the thing that's going to stick in their mind is a performance.
0: Yes. Well, obviously, it was covered in America on television, mm. on court TV, um, uh, very different to what we have in the UK, where it's rare for cameras to be in the court other than judgments mm. now. Um And therefore, a lot of people were playing along at home and and watching along. Uh, And I remember looking at some of your social media. um, People were very much either one team or the other.
3: There are millions of people invested in the outcome of this legal battle. And millions of people continue to endlessly hurl vitriol and abuse at each other online even now because there are those who believe that Amber Heard was telling the truth and Johnny Depp used his money and influence to get the verdict that he wanted. And there are those that are saying, look, television showed her up for who she is. And the jury agreed. God bless the American judicial system and its transparency. And there are arguments for both.
0: Uh, Looking at looking at some of those tweets, some of the the American audience couldn't really understand your impartiality in the case.
3: Well, there's a does, this feeds into the wider culture war in America. You're, as George Bush said, you're either with us or against mm. us, and the polarized nature of debate in the United States is such that, if you, you know, and I appreciate that everyone brings their own unconscious biases to any environment, and it's it's you have to try and strip out your presumptions as a reporter if you're trying to be objective and as neutral as possible. But in America, even an attempt like that is not seen as something in good faith. Mm. And I'm not blanketing, every, car, car, mm. tarring everyone with the same brush. Of course, there are great objective reporters out in America and, and, and people trying to do the, the very best to do a good job representing all sides but of based the But
0: basically by not giving opinion, you're hiding something.
3: Exactly that. You're shady. You're shilling for someone, but you're just not declaring your hand. Mm. Now, that makes you less trustworthy yes. than an enemy.
0: Mm.
3: Now, If you're my enemy, I know exactly where you're coming from and I can deal with you if you're playing this objective reporting neutrality game how can i trust you and that's obviously turns on its head this, this the the at least the broadcast system that we have in this country and i think the tradition that many reporters even if they work for uh newspapers which have an agenda there is still a certain sanctity of, of yeah, what was it uh, opinions opinions are two penny facts mm. are sacred i don't know the exact quote but you know i always feel that my job as a journalist should be to get to the bottom of what the facts of a story are. And then if you know enough about a story and you've stayed with it a long enough time, you then may be able to use in the the BBC editorial policy phrase your judgment about Mm. what direction a story is going. And with the post office story, for instance, I've just been covering it for so long that I I have spilled over into opinion. And it's a very seductive thing because if you nail your colours to a mast or you say something which is... It does point to an opinion about a specific thing, which carries with it your judgment. People start investing in you and your opinion, and it you can see how on social media, like for instance during the pandemic, the 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 pro lockdowners and the anti lockdowners, yes. the the more strident the opinions, the more fo- the more of a following that they got, the more that they were lionized amongst their specific camps in social media. I mean, I, I get accused of uh, being being a a journalistic shill. I'm not quite sure who for or, or, or what that would mean, but you know the abuse. Or where that, the
2: money comes. Or, from. Yeah,
3: well, this is the point. You know, if I wanted to make money out of my coverage of the Johnny Depp story, I would nail my colours to one particular mask and start hammering away. There's no money in trying to, as I've learned to my bitter bitter experience, there is no money in trying to carve a neutral mm. path. But I think it is. I think this sounds awful. Well, not awful. but just pompous. I don't want to be like that. That, that sort of person, but. Mm. I think it's important that someone is trying to do this. Yes. And I think the more people who try to do this, the better the world gets.
0: That was Nick Wallace speaking to me earlier. Depp vs. Heard, the unreal story is available from Wednesday and you can check out a longer conversation about his time in the States reporting on the case and how to hold your own on social media against Team Depp and Team Amber when you join our Patreon. Uh, just head to patreon.com slash media pod. Doesn't matter whether you're a media student or a high-flying exec, uh, there's a tier for you. So that's patreon.com slash media pod. Uh, there's also a link in the show notes. Uh, right, don't go anywhere.
3: Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
3: And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
2: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
0: And we're back with Jake and Karen Time for some news in brief. Uh, So um, BBC staff in local radio are going to be on strike again soon. Uh, This is after union members uh, voted this week. This comes amid more criticism of the handling of presenter redundancies uh, described to private eye by one employee as a clusterfuck. Nice. Um, Jake, a little extreme perhaps, but this hasn't been the the easiest of restructures has it
1: i'm not sure it is. <laughs> it's extreme i mean the strength of opinion that i hear from bbc insiders on this issue is that it's a mess and um there's no clear way out of it i mean they just sat down with acas um mm. which has tried to bro- broker some kind of uh civil negotiations that will end up in an agreement that has failed and they seem to be getting somewhere because they yeah, put off a strike th- didn't yeah, they? they well they 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 averted a strike mm. last week um which was timed to coincide with the local elections so you know a win from the BBC's, pers- bbc's perspective the concessions that the bbc offered is uh they've i think removing the risk of redundancy for 300 journalists um and they are introducing further guarantees for redeploying people i think as well um that's basically the offer that was on the table as part of these acas negotiations uh, and that was put to uh, members of the National Union of Journalists, uh, and they have voted in a consultative ballot to reject that. I think really interestingly, the uh, the majority has has uh, decreased significantly. So uh, last year, when there was a consultative ballot on this issue, ninety percent of members voted in favour of uh, strike action or actions short of a strike, um, and. This week, it's been 55%. So, you know, the BBC has made progress here, but I, there there is still outstanding issues. I spoke to someone today and I asked, what, what's it going to take for the deadlock to be broken here? And their response was uh, to scale back the content sharing um, one of the big proposals on the table is the BBC is going to make a local radio stations share loads and loads of content, uh, thereby sort of reducing the impact of the localness um, and uh, put more money back into linear radio um, instead of these big digital plans that the BBC has.
0: I mean, it's very difficult. I'm kind of torn on this issue. Obviously, radio is something that uh, I think a lot about uh, and th- they're not wrong to say that actually investment into local digital content is a is a good thing. You know, BBC local radio might have a 13, 15, 16% reach in certain areas. That's still a lot of people that aren't getting BBC content, redeploying that in, in digital is probably not a, necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I think what's been interesting, there's some really good writing by David Lloyd, um, uh, who's the programme director of Boom Radio, has a lot of experience in commercial radio, saying that, if that that's, uh, he sort of agrees, but at the same time, where has the investment in digital come from up to now and why if you go to BBC local or BBC local news sites, uh, is it not updated very much and will this magically be fixed by redeploying seventy people? I mean it's a challenge for, for all broadcasters moving to digital, but um, why why are the BBC so so slow on this or haven't been able to, to grasp this?
2: Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and I don't know the answer to it, but I do think it's, I always get my back up a little bit when people say we're going to replace broadcast with digital um, because they reach different audiences at different times in different situations. So you have to think about who you're leaving behind as well as who you're welcoming in. And I think you need to do both because obviously digital has a reach and audience um, that, can, that, that can get to people who would never would never turn into broadcast radio, might not even own a device on which they would ever listen to a radio. Um, but equally, especially for the BBC, as a as a as a public broadcaster Um, there are people who currently would not have access to some of the digital content that they're creating Um, for me it's most important that we do the reporting that there is still local coverage that there is still local content being produced Um, but I would also like to you know in a perfect world you would want that world to be distributed to all of the people who need to hear it Um, so a both and strategy would be ideal that's clearly not where the BBC is at the moment so yeah there are some tough choices. Uh,
0: When I've spoken to people Jake I think one of the the big bits of annoyance is is how it's been done. Now, I've been on a few different sides of this in the past. I've been on the corporate side having to make some redundancies. And the aim is to do it quickly. It's not very nice, but at least you know where you are with it, both the staff that are staying and the staff that are going. And what it seems with this is it's been a really drawn out process. And I think some of the people that have been made redundant will now potentially stay on air for another six to nine months because of how they're rolling out the localness i mean that's part of the reason staff are unhappy right
1: yeah absolutely it's been completely protracted i mean so protracted i mean as i said we were talking about this last year Mm. um look the bbc will say it has to go through due process um but i think this probably shows how difficult the bbc finds it to make meaningful cuts and this is an issue that the bbc is going to encounter more regularly going forward not less it's got to take money out of out of its uh, you know out of its content unfortunately and out of jobs because it has a flat license fee and inflation is dramatically higher than uh, than its current level of uh, of license fee of, of level of funding and so tough decisions lie ahead and I uh, you know I think it's been a little bit lost actually this, this this is the first major strike action at the BBC in more than a decade And I honestly believe it will be the precursor to further strikes, not just in the BBC's local uh, divisions, but, you know, more nationally as well. Well,
0: we've seen issues with the BBC singers, with the orchestras, with the BBC news channel changes. uh, And some of this is is about organisational problems, not necessarily entirely the cuts. The cuts are the reason, uh, but how you deal with it. Uh, is is usually important, and, and maybe that's where they need the investment to have staff who can who can do a better job of that. Okay, so we talked there about BBC News Channel. Um, Jake, you wrote a story for Deadline this week about the new look BBC News Channel. So this is the merging of what was the BBC's domestic news channel that we see on the telly uh, with the BBC World News Service, which uh, people see outside of the UK. Uh, so what's been what's been going on?
1: Yeah, well, that merger sort of officially took place. On April the third, so we've got about a month's worth of viewing data to to sift through, and uh, BBC News's audience here in the UK has dropped quite dramatically, ten percent. They've lost a million viewers. Uh, that's audience reach uh, rather than individuals, um, and uh, viewers are complaining that they're not seeing enough UK news, that the agenda is really international in focus, and uh, that's putting people off. Quite frankly. Uh, insiders will tell you that this was entirely predictable. Um, Isn't
0: there also just a bit that, that, that those news channel ratings do flux? I think that's bit. true.
1: The BBC—that's the BBC's response. Right. Okay, they say that you know it's cyclical and big stories that will go up and down and all. This, and, and they talked about a sort of wider uh, downward drift in news viewing. Um, I'm not quite sure that stacks up completely. I mean, you look at GB News; they had a they had a jump in audience uh in april um maybe they benefited from bbc news viewers deserting the bbc uh so uh, look it, I, there's clearly a bit of a downward drift but um some of the bbc's rivals could certainly benefit here i think from this decision and the bbc has tried to dress it up as a big digital strategy you know trying to engage the tiktok generation in bbc news what it really is is a cost-cut- cost-cutting initiative and uh, there are lots of presenters at BBC who are sitting around twiddling their thumbs at the moment because they don't have any um, clarity on their future.
0: Uh, well, it's a repeated story, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, Karen, did you see this piece about, uh, by a former BBC journalist about the Brexit bus?
2: The 350 million? Yes. Yeah, so the um, the accusation here is that uh, Robbie Gibbs um, who was at the BBC at the time and then I think left to work for Theresa May mm-hmm. So and is now back as and a, is,
0: a board director.
2: Exactly. So um, an interesting journey that he's been on. Um, <laughs> that he discouraged strongly uh, the journalists from, uh, from interrogating and digging into the facts behind the 350 million uh, claim. And this is not the first time that uh, Gibbs has taken criticism directly from former BBC journalist I think uh, Lewis Godall said something on the uh, on the news about it quite quite pointedly about you know having been cut, taken to task by Robbie Gibb for not being impartial when he was sitting there thinking well but you yourself <laughs> We're not particularly impartial. Are not particularly impartial so um, it's kind of just more fuel for the fire and I think on the back of the the row about the chairman recently it it's just um, there's, a, there's a there's a tinge there's a certain whiff coming up from certain sectors within um, within the BBC's leadership which is a shame it's it's um it, yeah there's <laughs> i it, it, it's it's we're not finding the way out of it into uh into anything that would look like genuinely impartial news um, i mean this
0: is part of rob burl's new book um i mean robbie gibb he's he's always been a bit of a lightning rod and now that the bbc chairman has been dispatched uh do you think the the limelight might shine further on him and his ways
1: uh he's an incredibly divisive figure in the bbc newsroom um uh he he is well regarded in some mm. corners, but a lot of people do not appreciate him sticking his nose into uh sort of day to day editorial matters. Uh, he has apparently, reportedly, ruled himself out of the running for BBC chairman, which I'm sure will come as a relief to some journalists German- <laughs> and the BBC. Probably an understanding yeah.
0: that he is uh, a lightning rod and probably yeah. wouldn't have the chance. I just don't that.
1: think... I mean, look, in an environment where we've had so much scrutiny of Richard Sharp's sort of political connections to install Robbie Gibb uh, would be uh, a hugely provocative move, I think. Um, but, you know... His argument is, I'm just doing my job. I'm trying to hold the BBC's feet to the flames on impartiality. Uh, I'm trying to make sure that we dispel or break down some of the groupthink. This is a word that the Conservatives love uh, within the BBC. And, you know, I'm perfectly entitled to do that. That's, that's his position.
2: I just think it's really interesting because this impartiality word gets used so much, as you say, by typically by one side of the political spectrum to criticise the BBC. And I, I think it's a shame because actually it's an interesting and it's an important word. It's an important principle to try and adhere to. And I don't think any one person should ever be trusted to decide what counts as impartial, right? So what we need is a little bit more of a holistic view of a range of a plurality of viewpoints. Um, you need to You need to have the discipline. I mean, there's a whole set of cultures and institutions that go behind impartiality. And I would like to see the Robbie Gibbses of the world actually embrace that as something that you know needs to be achieved collectively and not by one person's point of view being rammed down the throat of the organisation. But that's just me.
0: Well, Deborah Turnis this week has talked about BBC Verify, which is a sort of an idea to try and be a bit more transparent about news sources. Um, I think she did this at um, uh, a media conference this week. Uh, I mean, it's the right... Idea, um, but it's it's tough to tough to achieve, isn't it?
2: Well, I think there's a long-standing problem, isn't there, of, of access journalism and the difficulty of, you know, in order to cultivate your sources, journalists have to do certain, you know, have to have certain relationships and conversations. And um, I know in the American media, it's often reported that you know a, a reporter, especially doing a political beat, will run a couple of profile pieces to get themselves access that they can then use. And their argument would always be, um, then it, when it comes back to it, when it, you know, when the when the times get tough, I was about to use a different word, um, and they and they've got a real story that they need to dig into they've got that uh, that that to pull on i think so i think you know the transparency is nice, um, but still journalists need to have anonymous sources for a lot of things or you don't get big stories breaking. And a lot of the most important stories that we do find don't initially come from a place where the journalist could or should reveal who their sources are. Jake, so should on. we have
0: a transparency report next to your Deadline <laughs> articles? <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, I'm, I,
1: I'm sure she's not talking about journalists revealing yes. their sources, but I'm, I, I really love the idea of BBC journalists showing their workings mm. a bit. And I tell you who's brilliant at this is Chris Mason. Mm. Um, he, he, he pulls back the curtain just a little bit on the sort of mechanics of his reporting. And it's fascinating. And he does it in such an articulate and everyman way. You know, it's so accessible. You can understand it. And he's been doing bits in his office as well. I don't know if you've seen it on the news channel. I just think it's really, really great. And I think, uh, I mean, look. Maybe it's because I'm a journalist; I identify with that, and I like to see it. But I also I, I do think that that sort of authenticity does resonate with viewers.
0: And we were talking with Nick earlier about um, a kind of belief from the audience, and I think uh, in this in this world where everyone's got their own filter bubbles, uh, they are thinking about providers, be they journalists or or, or people on the TV or people in print, um, about whether they're telling the truth or not, and whether they're They're realistic and sometimes being independent makes you seem like you're not being realistic or truthful. So uh, drawing back the curtain, maybe rebuild some of that trust.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I like the idea of doing it personally. I like the idea of putting the journalist first person into the story. I think that's also really great for trust building. We have a big problem with just sort of generally the media not being trusted. And I think when they when they report things in the sort of authorial voice of, you know, independence, um, you know, as if in, in passive voice, it doesn't necessarily help with all that. Um, but there have been a lot of efforts to try and, try and peel back the curtain on things that have been less successful. And I think one example that I always think about is the, the Washington Post and the New York Times, both in the US, they, when they had some kind of problems with sourcing, they then put out policies that said, um, if someone's going to be, for example, anonymous, you have to reveal why they've been anonymous. Mm. And now Washington Post and New York Times articles are filled with <laughs> ridiculous statements like so-and-so said, uh, you know, using using the, using the an anonymity because he was not authorized to discuss this. It's like, well, really how have much. you informed anyone? It's not helpful. So I think that Chris Mason is a really good example. Able of doing it with some humanity um, and not ridiculous policies like that.
0: Well, talking about direct verification leads us on to the media quiz, uh, which this week is entitled Don't Quote Me. Uh, three comments uh, from the week's media news. You tell me who said them or who said them about whom. Uh, makes perfect sense. So buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So, Karen, you will say and jake you'll say jake
1: right? I, I haven't done my homework for this so. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel prepped <laughs> prep for the quiz no no such thing
0: uh, okay question number one uh which celebrated tv writer said that streamers need more soaps jake yes is this stephen knight it yeah. is stephen knight off of peaky blinders and other yeah. things. Uh, do you know the much more of the story? No, I
1: don't. I know. I, I caught the headline, and I thought that seems like a a, a a smart thing to say potentially, and also probably angling for a good bit of business from <laughs> from a streaming network. Um, although not that Stephen Knight needs it particularly. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, Neighbours is moving to Amazon. Yes. Uh, so maybe they've got the, their own soap opera. Um, do you think streaming television is the, is the right place for uh, for soap operas? There's a lot of soapy stuff. I've just been watching the whatever the Madam Secretary rip-offs are uh, called, and that's basically a soap opera and scandal yeah. and things like that. It's quite soapy, isn't it?
2: No, I'm currently I'm currently enjoying the Bridgerton uh, spin-off. Ah, uh, yes. Is dishy, I enjoy it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I really like the thought that, that they should have more soaps, but I think it's interesting because a lot of the, the kind of tropes of soap operas are designed to keep broadcast viewers tuning in to mm. for the next day. Mm. So you know the classic, you know, the East Enders when the music kicks <laughs> up, <laughs> you know what they're doing. They're saying stay with us. But actually I think in some ways you could argue it works even better for binging because you, you know, Netflix made its made its uh its fortune to date on keeping people going for the next episode and the next. They've done that by keeping things kind of flowing through. So it almost mm. felt like you weren't there were no interstitial episodes. But I like the idea of keeping it really soapy. Um um, so
0: the binge thing is always one more episode. I, I, <laughs> one more. I, I know it's five past one, but just one, one more episode. <laughs> but the,
1: the, the idea of doing a soap suggests that you might do it on a sort of daily basis. Mm. And but the the thing about soaps for the traditional broadcasters is that they are foundational and they they bring viewers in and allow them to access other parts of the schedule. Mm. So if a streamer did that, you could plug other content potentially. I don't know.
0: Uh, there isn't a lot of cross promotion within shows. I mean, Apple mm. TV do do a, a, a bit of it. We don't really sit so much on on Netflix. it will be interesting to see uh, what they do. Uh, right, so question number two: Who has requested that GB News attends a meeting to discuss its approach to compliance? Jake. Yes, Jake. This is Ofcom. This <laughs> <It> is Ofcom. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is for uh, GB News's uh, second significant breach. Yeah.
2: And, and this, was, this was the Naomi Wolf interview, wasn't it? It was. Um, where Naomi Wolf was um, was allowed to go on an ex, for an extended period of time um, spreading COVID mis- misinformation um, and suggesting that vaccines were were dangerous and killing millions of people. And I think it was quite interesting because, you know, the Ofcom, Ofcom was saying, look, we, we accept that there need to be a variety of views, but also it has to be responsible and you have to consider viewer safety, um, which seems a reasonable point to make when you're talking about something as potentially... Potentially deadly as vaccine denialism.
0: I mean, Jake, it sounds quite minor being invited into uh, a meeting with Ofcom, but actually, on the kind of pantheon of them being annoyed, disappointed, <laughs> uh, a meeting's actually quite high on the a list, bit and probably a bit before the old fining.
1: Yeah, it. I mean, this registers in the red for Ofcom. Um, I think if you don't know the way that Ofcom operates, then you'll look at this and think. A meeting um which is uh, to be fair, I have that response as well. i think this this is really serious they've They've said that these are two significant breaches, and I imagine that meeting will involve some sort of final warning, uh, and if it happens again, there will be some sanction uh, there will be some sanctions, I should imagine.
0: Uh, Well, GB News has lost £30 million last year, so they can't afford uh, a fine uh, from Ofcom, too. Uh, Right, question number three. uh, Who was Naga Manchetti referring to when she tweeted this week, What a loss? I don't know this. So um, no idea. So this is BBC presenter Razia Iqbal. She said uh, on Twitter, personal news after more than three decades, my career at the BBC is drawing to a close. Uh, I leave in the summer and I'm so grateful for the brilliance of colleagues the trust people put in us to tell their stories and transformative adventures. Uh, New Horizons uh, beckons. She was a a BBC uh, news uh, presenter. I mean, there's going to be a, a lot more of these, aren't they? And, aren't there? And it's sort of slightly difficult for colleagues who are stars to to talk about it.
1: Uh, there has been a lot of them already. I mean, the you know, the BBC has suffered somewhat of an exodus, a, a real brain drain. Uh, you know, you only need to look at yeah, you, know, you mentioned Lewis Goodall earlier. You can Emily name Maitlis, Emily Maitlis maybe. and John Sopel and Andrew Marr and Andrew Neil, and the list goes yeah. on and on. And there's this, bit, there's just going to be this steady drip, I think, of senior journalists leaving the BBC. And that can be for many reasons, Uh, pay potentially, people talking about finding their editorial voice because they've been straight jacketed by the BBC's very strict impartiality rules. Yeah, there are lots of reasons why people might want to get out and uh, try some commercial uh, clothes on potentially.
0: Uh, well congratulations jake uh, you win the media quiz and as part of the prize you get to a review of impartiality across all news networks uh, congratulations do come back uh, with your report uh, thank you both uh, for today uh karen where can people keep up with uh, what you're up to
2: well as long as it's still up i'm still on twitter so <laughs> yeah. at karen j r k r i n j r on twitter and uh follow me there
0: lovely and jake
1: yeah at jake underscore canter
0: Uh, And of course, they can read your excellent work in Deadline.
1: Yes, or not excellent work as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks both. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, We've been recording at the very fancy, but affordably priced, The London Podcast Studios in central London, with a full HD fixed rig and a smile at the door. Uh, We highly recommend them. Uh, Book your next recording here. Just go to thelondonpodcaststudios.com That's thelondonpodcaststudios.com There's a link in the show notes. And to hear more from Nick Wallace and how he's managed to sustain his investigations through donations, uh, you just need to join our Patreon, where the fun never stops. Uh, There's several hours of insight to access, including all of Nick's work, just head to patreon.com slash mediapod patreon.com slash mediapod Uh, and remember you can now watch a lot of this on YouTube as well. Uh, so maybe you can mention that to your colleagues when you talk about us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, uh, and all new episodes, as well as being on YouTube, are on in your podcast app of choice. Uh, subscribe at podfollow.com/slash the media podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Deegan. The producer is Matt Hill. It was a rethink audio production. We'll see you next week.